this is Chris, and with me is... Oh, hey, I'm Kara. So we're, uh, we're the Sausage of Science for the Human Biology Association. We featured an interview with Nina Jablonski and had the best of intentions to edit it all together down to a nice, concise half hour. But between us talking and the interview with her, and then the lecture that she did later on, there was just so much coolness coming that we're going to split it up. Yeah, and Nina Jablonski is just too awesome to try to condense down in any way. Okay, so here's Nina Jablonski again. It is such a pleasure and honor to be here and to talk about one of my very favorite subjects that I've been pursuing for many years and a subject that I particularly wanted to bring to this audience. I was telling my colleagues at dinner time that I get relatively few invitations to speak in the South. And I, I don't know exactly why that is, but I accept every one of them because I think it's really important that we all not only talk about evolution and human evolution, but we talk about the origins and meaning of human physical diversity. This is something that we as Americans are really good at avoiding. And what I'm going to try to introduce to you tonight is a little bit of my own personal research journey in this area and also how I'm trying to uh, to change the way that American kids are taught about human physical diversity, human evolution, human diversity, and what race means. It's been recognized for a very, very long time that skin color is related to the intensity of sunlight. But the nature of the relationship between sunlight and human physique has only recently become clear as we understand more about the composition of sunlight and what sunlight does to organisms on the Earth's surface, including humans, and how humans over time have adapted to this unique environmental load. We have benefited tremendously in our own research by NASA, NASA good taxpayer dollars that have been invested in the study of ultraviolet radiation at the Earth's surface. It was recognized by about 1950 that ultraviolet radiation out of all of the different kinds of solar radiation was the most important in determining skin color on the Earth's surface, that there appeared to be the highest correlation there on the basis of the data they had at hand at the time. What the workers in the 1950s didn't have were NASA data. And so we benefited tremendously by the publication of enormous data sets beginning in the early 2000s that allowed us to understand for the first time at a very granular level what levels of solar radiation, particularly ultraviolet radiation, existed on the Earth's surface. So we could, for the first time, look at the relationship between individual human populations and their skin pigmentation and the individual ultraviolet radiations there. We have very intense UV close to the equator, much less UV farther away from the equator, and of particular importance, 
There's much more of the low UV area in the northern hemisphere than in the south. So the sun, ultraviolet radiation comes in various uh, forms. The most high intensity UVC is absorbed by the atmosphere, but UVB and UVA are, are penetrating the atmosphere to greater or lesser extents. So when we think about ultraviolet radiation, it isn't much of a muchness. It's very uh, distinct in its penetration of the atmosphere with UVC being completely absorbed. UVB here at the equator, mostly absorbed, but still at the equinox. At the equinox of the equator, quite a bit of UVB and a huge amount of UVA along with visible light. This means that basically in equatorial environments at both equinoxes, you get a tremendous UV load. And it is under these situations that we see the evolution of the human lineage. Not only the evolution of early members of the genus Homo, but the earliest members of our species Homo sapiens that evolved in Africa under high-intensity ultraviolet and solar regimes. Our challenge was really to understand how we evolved under the, under the sun with naked skin as our primary interface with the environment. This is a very different relationship than most organisms have, organisms that have hair or feathers or scales or that live underground. We have mostly naked skin. How did we navigate this very, very difficult physical challenge of high ultraviolet radiation? I won't digress a lot into chemistry, but so much of understanding how this has worked out for us comes down to understanding the molecules in our skin that afford some protection against ultraviolet radiation. The most important of these, by far, is this uh, molecule called eumelanin, which is this super long organic polymer that is incredibly good at absorbing visible light as well as ultraviolet radiation. Ultraviolet photons, when they impinge on eumelanin, basically are absorbed by this molecule and can't pass any deeper. Eumelanin is a pigment. It, it affords dark pigmentation to not only human skin, but to bird feathers, to all sorts of organismal integument. It's been used lavishly throughout evolution, not for just a few million years, but for hundreds of millions of years. Once evolution gets hold of a molecule that it does a good job, it's used over and over and over again. And eumelanin has been invoked and used and repurposed and slightly tweaked in its structure in many, many lineages. So it's been used a lot. We also, in our skin, all of us, have this yellow-red molecule, pheomelanin, which is much less good at, at absorbing ultraviolet radiation. What it tends to do is absorb it, but then create chemical transformations in the skin that are harmful to us, that actually cause uh, the, the precursors of skin cancer. But the hero of the piece here tonight is eumelanin, which becomes a major part 
of human skin at the same time that we lose most of our functional body hair. And basically, you've got this, this really important master protein that lives in your skin cells called the melanocortin-1 receptor that is uh, directed in its activity by a particular gene called the MC1R locus. This receptor protein, which sits on the surface of the pigment-producing cells, determines whether eumelanin or melanin is going to be produced. And what we see early in the evolution of the genus Homo is that we see a complete switch over to the production of this molecule through genetic changes in that locus. So this molecule becomes extremely important. Production of natural sunscreen becomes extremely important in newly naked skin. And so in early members of our lineage that lived around two million years ago and up to the present day, the earliest ones, functionally hairless, little bee hairs, but basically hairless over most of our bodies, enhanced barrier functions of the skin. Basically, our skin had to compensate a lot for the lack of fur, not only for it in sunscreening properties, but also in protecting against abrasion and pathogens and other things in the environment. So our, our physical barrier on the surface of our skin is very tough and resistant to attack. And then we, did, we involve dark pigmentation, this eumelanin-rich pigmentation, which is, is concentrated natural sunscreen built directly into our skin. So in the absence of hair all over, we have a different sunscreen that is pliable, it works into our, our beautifully naked skin, and it protects us quite perfectly from ultra, for most of the depredations of ultraviolet radiation. Studying those data relative to levels of ultraviolet radiation, and we were able to find that, in fact, human skin color among indigenous populations that had been in their home environments for more than 500 years were very highly correlated with autumn levels of ultraviolet radiation. And so we can think of this as this, uh, this R correlation as 86% of the total variation that we see in skin color around the world is attributable to the intensity of ultraviolet radiation alone. When people first started thinking about the evolution of skin pigmentation and recognized that ultraviolet radiation was important, they, they said, well, ultraviolet radiation is causing damage to skin, and the damage that is occurring in skin is leading to skin cancer, and certainly, protective pigmentation has to have evolved because we needed protection against the development of skin cancer. And then uh, a, a very good clinician back in the 60s recognized that skin cancer develops in people primarily after their reproductive years, in their 40s, 50s, and 60s the most harmful kind of, or the most deadly form of skin cancer is extremely rare and still afflicts people primarily after their reproductive years. So this got folks thinking about, well, 
golly, it can't be skin cancer that is really the, the primary moving force, the, the pressure, the evolutionary pressure for the evolution of skin pigmentation, because it's not going to affect reproductive success. We have to think about an evolutionary force that actually is going to affect a person's reproductive trajectory. What might actually affect their reproductive success? And we recognized that that might be something altogether different, that ultraviolet radiation had an effect on an important B vitamin, folate, that in turn affected reproductive success. And really, our work on the evolution of skin pigmentation began over 25 years ago with this sort of central insight that ultraviolet radiation affected folate levels, folate that is a, a water-soluble vitamin that we get from green leafy vegetables and whole grains and so forth that becomes dissolved in our, our bloodstream and that is used by our cells to make DNA, modify DNA, and many other important processes in our body. If you have a physical agent like ultraviolet radiation that is altering something like this vitamin folate that then affects reproductive success, then you have something that is as close as we're likely to get to a smoking gun in evolutionary uh, ex explanations. And folate was particularly highlighted uh, in the late 80s and early 90s. The absence or deficiency of folate was highlighted as being very important in the development of specific birth defects, specifically neural tube defects. As I mentioned, folate is something that we have to get from our food and the most important dietary sources are green leafy vegetables, citrus fruits, and whole grains. And so we have to keep eating these substances. Folate is a highly labile compound. It can be broken down by lots of different environmental agents, not only ultraviolet radiation, but by alcohol that we might imbibe. And so we have to make sure that we eat a lot of folate-rich foods in order to stay healthy. And folate is required for all sorts of things in the body that are, in turn, essential for, for, um, for health and reproductive success. Many of these relate to DNA, the actual manufacture of DNA in cells, as well as its repair and its regulation. And it's also been recognized recently that it's, that it's important in another factor, which I'll mention presently. And you know what's cool? I'll come back to this at the end of the lecture. Under high ultraviolet regimes worldwide, in the course of human evolution, as human populations have moved from one place to another, we have had different genetic mechanisms, not just this one, that contribute to the production of eumelanin in the skin. The protection of the body against solar radiation has been of such high priority in terms of individual uh, survival and reproductive success that there has been considerable evolutionary pressure for mutations to be adopted or mutations to be uh, promoted in evolution that favor the production of this magic, wonderful natural sunscreen. 
We now know that in human physiology, there is a palette, as it were, of over 100 pigmentation genes, many of which determine the intensity of eumelanin <coughs> pigmentation. So although this particular gene and this particular protein have been important in sort of the original Homo sapiens evolution of dark pigmentation, when we see dark and highly tannable skin in other populations, this is due to other genetic mutations leading to the same end. That is beautiful evolutionary biology. Darkly pigmented skin, we now understand, resulted in, in early members of our lineage from what we call a selective sweep, something that was so important to reproductive success that once that gene became common, it became swept to 100% frequency because it conferred such monumental advantage with respect to reproductive success. This occurred probably in the course of centuries or a few millennia. It's not something that crept along in human evolution. One of the few useful, productive, positive things that ultraviolet radiation does is catalyze the formation of vitamin D in the dermis of the skin. Here, this ultraviolet beam radiation, which I really slagged off a few minutes ago, really maligned as being mostly negative, turns out to be positive in that in this area of skin, there are uh, cells that can convert a, a cholesterol-like precursor into pre-vitamin D in the presence of UVB photons. They have to be within a specific narrow wavelength band, but the UV interacts with, the, with, the, with this cholesterol-like uh, compound, and voila, you get pre-vitamin D3 made in the skin, and we get most of our vitamin D historically by making it in the skin through exposure to the sun. What happens if people start living away from the equator, though? We saw at the equator, they, they get lots of UVB, more UVA, but they get lots of UVB throughout the year. But if people start to live away from the equator, and here we see at the, in the far northern hemisphere that UVB in the wintertime, at the winter solstice, is completely absorbed by the atmosphere although UVA makes it to the Earth's surface. If UVB is actually going to be helpful in catalyzing the very beginning of vitamin D production in the body, and if you don't have any UVB reaching the Earth's surface during many months of the year in the northern or extreme southern hemisphere, then you can see that we have a physiological problem. Because people who have high levels of natural eumelanin sunscreen in their skin, or even people who have some eumelanin sunscreen in their skin, are not going to be able to produce vitamin D in their bodies 
low or highly seasonal in their environments. Now you think in Alabama that you get a lot of UV, and I'll tell you, today is a hot and sunny day, but most of the ultraviolet radiation that you were experiencing today was UVA. It was relatively little UVB because we're coming into the autumn months when the sun's rays are hitting even relatively southern Alabama at a fairly oblique angle, and much of the UVB is absorbed by the atmosphere. So lightly pigmented skin is sort of an exception to the Homo sapiens rule. And we'll see in, a, in another fascinating story of evolutionary biology that lightly pigmented skin evolved more than once in human evolutionary history. So important is it to have vitamin D produced in the skin by available ultraviolet radiation that this loss of pigmentation occurred not once, not twice, but probably three or four times in the evolution of modern humans as they've dispersed around the world. Vitamin D is, is, is an extremely important vitamin, and its, its classical functions are associated with, the, with calcium and phosphorus absorption from the gut and transport to other organs. These functions uh, are absolutely essential for the normal formation of our skeleton and teeth and musculoskeletal system. And in the absence of vitamin D at critical times in our development, we can, we can have bones that are too soft to support the body weight, this conspicuous picture of what is called nutritional rickets which was, has been a common disease at various times in human history under particular circumstances. And under very severe conditions of vitamin D deprivation, and especially in darkly pigmented women, uh, this was documented best in the American South during, during periods of reconstruction at right the end of slavery, at the end of the Civil War. A lot of, of uh, descendants of African slaves who were living indoors and who were vitamin D deficient because they weren't getting any sun exposure had pelvis that were constricted. They couldn't give birth to, in normal vaginal deliveries, and they and their infants died. It was under these circumstances that some of the most innovative procedures for delivery of cesarean sections were developed in the world of obstetrics. But that's another story. What was unfortunate for many of these women is that they lost their lives because their vitamin D deprivation, their deficiency, was so severe that it caused their pelvis to be deformed. At extreme latitudes, humans could only be successful in relatively recent times, in the last 15 to 20,000 years, by combining completely depigmented skin, or mostly depigmented skin, with a cultural, a very heavy cultural adaptation to the extraction of vitamin D-rich foods at highest latitudes. 
The evolution of, of loss of pigmentation, as I mentioned earlier, is not something that happened just once in human evolution. It's happened multiple times. And one of the most exciting and, and honestly surprising findings that has emerged from the science of skin color genetics in the last 15 years has been the discovery that depigmentation in Western Europeans and Eastern Asians has proceeded along independent genetic avenues due to mostly entirely independent genetic mutations. Again, with this large palette, as I'm calling it, of genes that control pigmentation, you can do a lot of minor sort of fiddling, or there can be a lot of different variation producing mutations leading to loss of pigmentation because of the number of genes, the complexity of the pigmentation pathways. There are many pathways to get to the same end result. And this is what we're seeing over and over and over again. It's, it's the phenotype, it's the <laughs> external appearance that counts. It doesn't matter about the underlying genetic machinery. As long as you can get to the successful phenotype, that's all that matters. So we see lots of different genes being involved in, in the parallel evolution of depigmentation, many loci. And these have been promoted under strong positive selection. This is work done by many colleagues. Uh, I'm not a geneticist myself. I just consume genomic and genetic uh, information lavishly and hungrily from my colleagues. One of the most interesting examples of what we call the vitamin D compromise is people living in one of the most UV-starved environments on Earth here in Northern Scotland. Some of you who have ancestors from those parts will, uh, will understand what I mean by a uh, solar-deprived environment, where even in the middle of June, you can have, at, at the summer solstice, very low levels of ultraviolet radiation. But people have been living healthy lives in Scotland for over 6,000 years. People originally living in the coasts were not only completely depigmented, but they also relied for their core food resources on vitamin D-rich foods like cod, traditional cod liver stews that were made with cod liver oil. People ate cod and other vitamin D rich foods like herring uh, as, as a central part of their diet. People who lived in the hinterland transported these materials to their homes so that they could eat it. Basically, they maintained their health through this wonderful combination, this biological and cultural combination that allowed them to get enough vitamin D from both sources to stay healthy. What happens today when all of the cod are fished out of the North Atlantic and Scots people are left basically eating French fries and, and horrible white fish that doesn't have any vitamin D in it? What you have is massive population levels of vitamin D deficiency, huge amounts of, of cardiovascular and other pathology, not just due to vitamin D deficiency, but to other uh, issues as well. But vitamin D deficiency strikes hardest in these extreme environments like Scotland where a biocultural compromise was 
holding human health together in a fragile way over the last many centuries. So we can really see just, just right now that, that skin pigmentation is a nice, in fact, a beautiful evolutionary compromise between the demands of photoprotection under very high UV regimes and those of photosynthesis of vitamin D under low UV regimes. And in between, you get a lot of people of intermediate pigmentation who are able to tan under conditions of high UV and lose pigmentation in the, uh, in the fall and winter under low UV. We know that skin color, similar skin colors, virtually visibly identical skin colors have evolved independently many times in evolution. And that should immediately make the penny drop that skin color is an evolutionarily important consideration in terms of an adaptation and a pathway to reproductive success. But the fact that similar skin colors have evolved repeatedly in independent modern groups of humans means that it is not a characteristic that has any identifying value. It is not uniquely associated to one, one genetically integral group. So the idea that skin color can be used as an identifier of race is a nonsense. And it's something that we need to recognize. This is an interesting biological trait that has no value in the classification or genetic clustering of individuals. This is around half of our lecture from the uh, Allele series, the Alabama Lectures on Life's Evolution at the University of Alabama with Nina Jablonski. To hear more, including some fascinating social history of the use of skin pigmentation and race, and the lack of it among, for example, Egyptians up and down the Nile, um, and then the implementation of skin color as a distinction and hierarchy in the Persian Empire. Check us out online at uh, our, our iTunes U site. Um, that's the Allele series of which I am a part. And we'll put a link on the show notes for this show so you can find it all. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon.